Hello and welcome back to Trees A Crowd. My name is David Oakes and this is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think the natural world is incredible. Whether seeking a career in herding or simply enthused by birding, I get to speak to those people dedicated to or inspired by the natural world. This bonus episode was recorded back in July. It was in front of a live audience at the Global Bird Fair in Rutland, and it was kindly supported by the RSPB. My guest on stage that stormy afternoon was long-time friend of the show, having provided poetry recitals about curlews and poplars for previous episodes, but I will leave the rest of his introduction to be delivered by a now younger version of myself. Needless to say, this is Trees A Crowd, and this is coming to you live-ish actor, friend of the podcast, and RSPB ambassador, Sam West. In the depth of the forest, an old oak the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Hello, Global Bird Fair. Hello, Global. Hello, Rutland. <laughs> this afternoon, I've invited a very special guest. As you can see, it is Sam West. He is an actor, director, and birder. As an actor, he has visited Narnia, kissed Julia Roberts. Although they cut it. Did they cut it? Yeah. Did you get to keep it in secret? In my, in my dreams. It's there. <laughs> it's up there. And most recently, you've been found hanging around with all creatures great and small in the Dales. As a director, you ran the Sheffield Crucible and have been nominated for a number of Olivier Awards. And as a man with perhaps the silkiest voice in showbiz, you've survived Neuer's Flood, you've celebrated the Carnival of the Animals and presented your very own tweets of the day for Radio 4. But as you've heard, more importantly for where we are today, he's also the most recently appointed ambassador for the RSPB. So please, another round of applause for Sam West. Right, Sam, first question. What is the single greatest nature encounter that your career on stage and screen has offered you thus far? I have real problems with cows in all creatures great and small. I don't know if anybody's ever had to work with cows. They have a sort of strange aura around the back of them. If a horse is not feeling well, it, you can calm it down and it will not bite you or kick you. But a cow will kick you if it wants to. Uh-huh. So you sort of have to make safe noises approaching the back of a cow and if you stand next to them they're all right about that and they, they stand on a mark like actors do but if you move like good actors do yeah like good actors some actors do uh, and if you, but if you move they don't like that you're not there anymore so they move to be where you were before next to you which is sideways onto your foot <laughs> I've been stood on by cows in every single series of All Creatures Great and Small. We've just finished series four. And um, every time I meet one, I think, this time I'm going to master it. And I never do. <laughs> Have you had many intimate scenes with cows on All Creatures Great and Small? Well, with the, I have to say, the famous thing about All Creatures, Christopher Timothy talking about having his hand up a cow's bottom, in inverted commas, bottom, and saying how nice it felt. Uh, we have to take his word for it because we're not allowed to do that anymore. Uh, one Is that of because of the modern thing of intimacy coordinators? <laughs> Animal intimacy coordinators. Thank you. My daughter, my daughter thought it was very funny. Uh, an animal, you're not allowed to do anything that the animal doesn't need doing to it and that you're not trained to do. So previously, and this is no secret, in, in the 1970 series, if, a, if an animal was being a bit uppity, they'd sometimes just um, sedated it a bit. Uh-huh. And we can't do that. 
So one of my favorite an animal encounters on All Creatures is when we're working with cats who um, w won't rest, as you know, for anybody. They, they, you know, dogs have owners, cats have staff. And we are their staff, and we stroke them, saying, could you please pretend to be under anesthetic now, under chloroform? And they briefly decide to. And 15 stone sparks tiptoeing past with hot lamps, trying not to wake up a, a, a sleeping cat. Because you just have to, you have to shoot it in whatever mood it's in. It's like working with a baby. If a baby falls asleep on set, mm -hmm. you're not allowed to wake it up. You have to get another baby. <laughs> I once brilliant. fell asleep on the slab in Ripper Street. I was there being a corpse, and Matthew McFadden was cutting into me, and I fell asleep and started snoring during a tape. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm very professional. That's very relaxed. I'm impressed. You met Matthew McFadden. He puts you at ease. Yeah, he, he <laughs> must. He must, yes. Um, so are you living the dream then, someone who likes the natural world and getting to spend four months or so a year in the Dales just sort of pretending to be all the best bits of a, of a period vet? Yes. Okay, great. That is the, that is the absolute yeah. honest answer. I'm having a wonderful time. People seem to like the series. We've just wrapped on series four three days ago, so I'm slightly mourning it. As you say, the Yorkshire Dales, one of the most beautiful places in the world with some of the loveliest people and some of the most wonderful wildlife. I can't imagine what state I'd be in if I hadn't had this job in the last four years. Yeah. My darling partner is uh, mostly a, a playwright and has now pivoted into writing for screen and luckily is, and quite properly, is very busy writing for the screen. But um, theatre is almost dead on its feet for, for reasons that um, you, you can imagine. And um, this job, which came out actually exactly at the right time for something that people wanted perhaps simpler, closer to nature, about community, a bit more analogue. All of those things were very helpful to us. And also, um, we were then allowed to shoot our second series in lockdown, masked for rehearsal. Sure. And so we didn't even have to wait because of COVID. So it's been extraordinarily lucky. And as you say, I'm, I'm absolutely living the dream. It's my, my happiest job ever. How are the um, advisors on the show in terms of their natural history efficacy and accuracy? Very good. I mean, it goes without saying, although it does need to be said, that animal welfare is, goes above any of the billing. It goes above any of, the, you know, any of the titles. And for obvious reasons, if we were ever found to have mistreated an animal or, or filmed bad, badly with it, that would quite rightly be a story. But um, Andy Barrett who is our on-set vet, who's a bit of a birder. He always texts me when he says, I've just heard the first curlews on the Dales, so you must be back soon. <laughs> he's, he, he's doing it according to the, the rhythm of the, the season. So when, when, the, when the lapwings start calling and the curlews start calling, he knows we'll be back. It's so sweet. But you're not shooting at the right time of year according to the birds. I mean, I shot a Christmas special of Victoria in June and July, and so we had to have a, like a snowy exactly, ice rink. Exactly so that. How problem. do you get all the inappropriate well, I mean, birds to shut up when you, you're shooting the Christmas? Well, luckily, we have an amazing sound department, and if, uh, if my ears are attuned, well, of course they're attuned, I'm a birder. If, if I hear a cuckoo, or, a, or actually a collared dove, first seen in Britain 1958 or something, somebody will put me right, roughly, roughly that. Uh, so, of course, in 1940, absolutely no, no. Or a swift. They can't happen in our Christmas episode, which we film in June, <laughs> uh, just like yours, baking it, with, with really droopy Christmas trees, <laughs> sitting in, in huge overcoats trying to look like we're cold. 
We should do it in March when we start, when it properly is cold, yeah. but it's not written by then. I'm imagining people watching the, from the continuity department looking at the camera, uh, looking at the, the in video village, looking at the screen, not just looking for aeroplanes flying over, but making sure no red kites head under what? the sky. But it's, no, I mean, I'm sorry. No, nobody except you and me and probably everybody in this room will care about this. But during the second series, we had a screening of one episode, and the, the director said there's a lovely bird moment, knowing that I like birds. And... Nick, who plays James Herriot, went up onto, the, onto the, a high dale and there was a call and apparently the producer was sitting next to me. The producer said, and you just went, oh God. <laughs> and she turned to me afterwards and I said, she said, what, what was the matter? I said, well, it's a red kite, isn't it? And then the red kite appeared. I said, yeah, I saw it up there. It's good, isn't it? I said, yeah, it's great. It's just it was extinct in Yorkshire in the 1930s. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get letters. <laughs> it's not too late to turn it into a buzzard. She said, yeah, it is. It's too late. I'll deal with the letters. Yeah, points of view. Yeah, exactly. Why, oh, why, oh, why? <laughs> but, and people wrote to me on Twitter saying, red kites in your... I'm sorry, it wasn't in the script. <laughs> I'm the actor, don't shoot me. Um, so, yes, you're a birder. Where does this interest start? Let's take you back to the beginning of things. Quite late, really. I mean, I see people's lifeless. I'm a bit of a lister. And I see people who have 500, 550, and, they, you know, they're... They, they start in the 1960s. And I was born in 1966, but I don't really remember being delighted by birds until I was about 14. I was a train spotter mm -hmm. and still love trains. I w I'm, I'm quite, quite geeky. And a lot of naturalists have that dual interest. Yes. David Shepard was famously as interested in mechanical objects like planes and trains as he I was in I didn't know that. Yeah, he used That's to paint things for the RAF. That's why he went out to Africa in the early days. That's great. Yeah. I like that. Well, I mean, anything that makes me lean forward and also gives me a handle on a slightly confusing world to, to help catalogue it. But my uncle, who was in the army, worked in Kenya as part of a liaison force. And he used to shoot birds. And then, as he got older, he stopped shooting them and started watching them, which seemed to me the right way round. In fact, it's only ever that way round, isn't it? Nobody watches them and then starts shooting them. Uh, which Raise is your good. hands in the room, anyone? <laughs> We'll have Good, that, that works. It, it does work, yeah. Um, but uh, going out into, into Kenya was an eye-opener because, I mean, when you're starting birdwatching, you go to Kenya and everything's either this big and bright blue or nine feet tall and can't fly. <laughs> and, and so they're easier to tell apart. It's not until you get home and you realise everything's four and a half inches long and brown and streaky. <laughs> <laughs> much, much harder. And then I went to the Galapagos for an extraordinary You dropped that in really slyly. Though. Well, no, because it was my next really big thing with birds. Somebody took me to the Galapagos on a, on a holiday. How old are you now? Uh, oh, um, late, late 30s. Okay, so quite so a lot quite, later. So quite, quite a lot later. So there's no birds between there, Not Kenya really. There's a, there's, a, there's a tattered observer book of birds with black and white plates, sure. which I didn't really work my way through. And then I was, I was on a boat on the Galapagos with Miko Puhala, who was the Finnish ambassador to Peru. He was a big bird, a big lister, the first time I'd ever met one. His, his wife, sadly, was not into birds and was very frustrated with the fact that he chose all his postings according to how good the local avifauna was. So I think he might have said no to Washington, but he, but he said a very quick yes to, to Vietnam <laughs> and did a lot for the local bird life when he was there. I'm a bit like that with my jobs, actually. I'm a bit, I was about to say yeah, I'm exactly you must like be that. The same. I shot a film in the Malaysian, main, uh, Malaysian rainforest just for that very reason. I mean, I got a, a, a small part in Death in Paradise. Oh, yeah. And they said 11 days. Yeah, it's the best job in show business by all accounts. You, you'll have a spit and a whistle and one scene with them and you die over there, but you will get three weeks in paradise. 
11 days on, on, on Guadeloupe for, for a three-scene part, but I, but I now have the Guadeloupe woodpecker on my life list, <laughs> which, is, which is the rarest bird I've seen that fewest other people have seen. Uh, it's, the only, it's the only Guadeloupe endemic. So yeah, I picked I, I pick my jobs like that. But he was extraordinary, and we did, the, we did the Galapagos finches together, and I think he saw something there. And then when I, you mentioned the Crucible, when I started working the cruci at the Crucible, it was my first time running a theatre. It was very hard. I couldn't really do it. But I was living in the west of Sheffield, which those of you who know it will know is very close to some rather beautiful moorland in, in Derbyshire. In fact, when you drive back in from Derbyshire, it says you are now entering the city of Sheffield. Mm -hmm. And there isn't a single building within, within eyeshot. There's just lapwings going over the sign. And I used to go out in the mornings because I couldn't sleep. And my hook, my, my gateway drug was song, was bird song, because I've always been reasonably musical and had a good memory for, for songs and tones of voice, which I suppose is unsurprising given that I, I, I use my voice professionally quite a lot. So I, I, I bought Jeff Sample's CDs. I don't know if any of you know them. Beautiful Northumbrian sound recordist. Robin song. Three to four second bursts of clear-toned warbling. Overall, creating a sad tone or a wistful air. And I put those on, on the CD, driving up and down the M1 to Sheffield for, for about a year. And by the end of that, I knew quite a lot of birdsong. I've always loved the fact that it's a nominative determinism. It's a, my surname sample, so what I'll do is I'll compile a load of birds and whack them on a CD. Yeah. I mean, if you, get, if you get quite far with Jeff Sample, he's done a three-CD warbler set, which is the best thing in the world. I mean, it's really extraordinarily detailed. The best thing in the world. Well, I mean, for your wife and children are in the front. No, nah, no, no. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, is that what you would recommend to people wanting to get into birding later in life? Would you say find Through the song, song. first because that's the way, or is that just you in particular? That's just me, but I, I wouldn't overlook this because there's a Merlin app now which which will ID a song for mm. you, and I, I mean, I haven't used it, so I can't say it's terrible, but I don't recommend that way round because you'll miss out on this amazing thing, which is the first time you identify a bird by song that you can't see, and you look, and it is. And that's a drug. I did it with long-tailed tit. If you fancy listening to the tweet of the days that, I did, that I've done, one of them is about that, that very moment. And it, it's, it feels magical, because you can now walk through a wood that's had this cast of characters in that have always been there, mm -hmm. but suddenly you know who they are. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't miss that. I mean, I do 80, 90% of my birding with my ears now. Sure. And on a spring morning, I can get a list almost with my eyes closed. And, and I, I love that. I mean, I'm still very confused by, by birdsong, but, but it, it's nice to add one or two a year, unusual calls from stuff that I hadn't got before, like I wasn't very good on pied flycatcher this year, but I got, I got the call this year and got my first pied flycatcher by call. And that feels like a sort of small exam that you've passed. Is that, in terms of your train watching as well, is that the kind of thing? Like, I know that you've gone through life learning poems quite frequently and you try and keep your mind active like that. Do you set yourself a target of, I will learn the song of three birds each week? It's your sort of Duolingo owl that comes along and prods you. And that, you that would be great, like actually. If there was a Duolingo for birdsong, that would be really <laughs> helpful. I would do that. But no, it's mostly just meeting something that I don't know. I mean, you know, the, the rule is... If you hear a song in a, in a wood and you don't know what it is, it's a great tit. <laughs> My children know that one. And it usually is, but, but sometimes it isn't. Red, Red Start was, was one I... I, I was reading um, 
This sounds, this sounds re- really posh, but actually, if you don't know this book, you probably know of it, but if you haven't read The Natural History of Selborne, Gilbert White's mm. book, don't deny yourself the pleasure. It's, it's just wonderful. He talks about the, um, the Red Star coming back in April and its scratchy call. And I thought, oh, God, well, I live in London. You never get Red Starts in London. And I, the, the arrival date of the Red Start might as well be fiction for me. Mm-hmm. And then one of the drivers on All Creatures Great and Small said, you know, there, up there, Sam, there's a lot of birds up there. And I said, what, up, in, up in that um, uh, quarry where we parked. So in between scenes, I had a couple of scenes off. I went w- walking up to the quarry. And I found five singing red stars. And they'd only just arrived. And suddenly I felt like I was shaking hands with Gilbert White across the centuries. And that, that's a song that I sort of probably could have got by, by elimination before. Sure. But now I could, certainly, I could certainly hear and go, that's a red star. I feel sorry for the director who ever tries to get you to focus during a scene shot outside. Hopeless. Yeah. Hopeless. I'm, o- I'm over there. Yeah. Well, somebody said, do you watch birds? I, I realised... And you know this feeling, probably. I don't, watch, I don't watch birds. I watch every bird. Every single bird that goes over the car on the way up here. You must all have done it. You can't not identify it. It's a sort of curse. I love your tweets of the day, primarily your Dipper episode, because you've described it perfectly in a way that stuck with me ever since I listened to it, which was that they throw themselves into the river like a romantic poet. Which is perfectly... Everyone's, everyone's giggling and going, yeah, that's, that's it. Spot on. Well done. Um, do you anthropomorphize the birds? Do you give them characters? Because that's sort of what we do as actors to things anyway. Or do you try and keep that sort of blood-brain barrier, the bird-human barrier between animal and human? I feel in principle that one shouldn't anthropomorphize animals. But on the other hand, and as ambassadors, I think we do whatever's necessary. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of my other tweets of the day is, is, is Ida song. I described a, gag- a gaggle of, co- of cooing idas as like nothing so much as a, a coven of gossiping Frankie Howards around the village pump. <laughs> you know, I just something. Oh, and and people have told me that they laugh at that. But I promise you, it's a really good way of remembering Ida song. What happens when new generations come through and don't know who Frankie, Frankie Howard, Howard is? is well, that's their problem, you see. Not only is he a bird, if we keep talking about these old dead <laughs> Who's people. that guy? <laughs> I, I think anything that gets it into your head, really. I mean, the job of, of ambassador... With Epaulettes and Ferrero Rocher. Yes. They haven't given me any Ferrero Rocher. You've got Rocher, a pin badge, really though. Crushed. You're looking very, I've very got a pin badge. This is the new RSPB logo. I like it extremely. Um... I think the simplest way of describing my job as an ambassador is to try and get across my enthusiasm for the natural world so that other people might have a go and feel invested like I do. I don't even need to mention birds. Mm -hmm. I I recently was asked to take part in uh, a little art exhibition, which you must definitely be in the next one, because this guy really does paint and draw. Uh, I'm a little bit of a photographer. And they said, it, it was an exhibition of, of actors' artworks. And I said, well, I, I'm not sure I can do anything. They said, just what about some lovely photographs? And I realised that I'm often up at sunrise. It's actors are very early starts. Everyone thinks we get paid loads and sort of just pop in and do a bit. We're, we're often up at four or five, which yeah. works perfectly if you're a birder. Very good, very good. It's the strangest thing. You get up, you have a shower, you put your clothes on, you go to work... You take your clothes off again. <laughs> you get dressed up for somebody else. 
Well, the, 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 the great thing you. is about doing period drama, though, is you are changing for a reason. When you're yes. doing something contemporary and you take off your jeans <laughs> put and put on different a different jeans, pair yeah. of jeans, and you just go, what is the point mm. in all of this? That's very strange. But getting up early really helps. And I'm sort of addicted to, to first light, particularly in spring and particularly in the dales. So I took a, a number of photographs. I, I framed 12 photographs, all taken within the first hour of after sunrise, either side of sunrise, some before, some after, at places like St. Aidan's, in, in Leeds, which I'm sure many of you know, places around the Dales that I'd enjoyed. And none of them had birds in. I, all I just really wanted to say was, no matter how nice the person you might be in bed with, it's worth getting up and getting out at first light <laughs> some of the time. Okay, and I, I, the I mean, actors, well, actors can get really, you know, who wants to listen to another actor wanging on about things that they don't know anything about? I know a bit about birds. And, I'm, and I really don't need to fake my enthusiasm for the natural world. So if I can say, look, get up early, it's beautiful, and I'll see you out there, then maybe a few more people will care when that place is threatened by a railway line or a piece of housing development. So I guess that brings me on to the question is, why the RSPB? What, it is, what was it about them in particular that made you want to serve in a formal capacity to represent their, their work? There you are on a big picture behind you. Oh, well, there we are in, in uh, Snettisham. Snettisham. Yeah. Yes. We made a little film with the brilliant Les Bunyan uh, of the Snettisham Wader Spectacular. I mean, that's one of the reasons I wanted to say is because they kept asking me things to do that, things like that. You want to go somewhere like fun for free. Well, if anybody hasn't done the Wader Spectacular at Snettisham... Become an RSPB ambassador and you get invited along. <laughs> but seriously, I mean, th there were 250 other people there when we did it. It's free. Well, you have to pay to get into the reserve if you're not an RSPB member. But people say... I want to you know, see hordes of wildebeest swim, swarming across the Serengeti on my bucket list. This is a, a, a wildlife site of equal quality, and it's free, and not many people know about it. It's extraordinary. It's, we should be incredibly proud of it. It will take your breath away. You don't know what breathtaking is until you've seen 4,500 knot flying over you, and you go, <gasps> and you think, okay, that's what breathtaking means. I can't actually breathe. You can, you, can't, you can hear them. They don't make noise. They're not calling. One bird doesn't make a sound. At four and a half thousand of them. Yeah. I mean, there aren't words. So anyway, there's that. I'm very pleased that the RSPB seemed to have found some political teeth recently. I think they've always had them, but they've been keeping them muzzled. Mm -hmm. And they're not muzzling them quite so much now. And in response to what they memorably called the attack on nature, hashtag, um, and quite rightly too, which is to do with a, a huge post-Brexit, huge amounts of environmental protection being thrown out. Uh, stuff that we should be proud of, actually. That we're You're speaking of the rule bill and the yeah. removal of the EU laws, yeah. Yes. Um, the RSPB said, this won't do, and there are a million of us, and quite a lot of us are quite conservative, and quite a lot of us live in some quite conservative areas, and that's a lot of postcards. And that's what a pressure group should be doing, it seems to me. It's very hard for the RSPB to, to be friends to everybody who buys food for a robin and looks out of the window and enjoys it, and that's a bird watcher, and somebody who lists and joins the BTO and records birdsong and you know, has a life list going back decades. But all of those people must find a home and it seems to me that now, with things like bird crime, raptor persecution, uh, loss of habitat, upland habitat, and indeed the campaign against Sizewell Sea, which I was part of, 
and which... There you are again. There's a picture of you with a mic. There I am. Uh, and which Kwasi Kwarteng uh, said yes to, I'm afraid. Although, given his record as Chancellor, perhaps everything he said yes to should be looked at again. Well, as, as of, I think, two days ago, the right to appeal the decision has just been granted. So there... I didn't know that. Yeah, there's, that, that, that could be stopping. Well, there's, And one of the interesting things that I, in, in the research for this that I found out was that part of the reason that Sizewell C was approved was that it would be fully decommissioned and all the waste safely uh, got rid of by 2140. Now, nuclear waste takes about 70 years to completely sort of be safe to store and hide somewhere else. So by my maths, that means Sizewell C needs to be built, be running, and then to start decommissioning by 2070, and they haven't started building it yet. So the, the whole maths behind that project, let that, alone... That the, really doesn't add up, does let, it? Yeah, let alone the eroding coastline and everything else. It is a, it's quite a spectacular... So that was a, that, was a, that was a quite a sparky day for the RSPB. They don't go onto the streets very often. And I thought, well, if you're going to... I'm quite good casting, because <laughs> I'm fairly shouty, especially on Twitter. I'm taking a few weeks off Twitter at the moment because of finishing all creatures and learning a play. But, but I do talk about birds quite a lot on Twitter. And, uh, and so if you want me to add my voice to the choir, as it were, and help to amplify the noise when there needs to be noise against things like Sizewell C, then I'm, I'm happy to stand on your barricade. And... Um, I was proud to be asked, really. That's my answer. I thought of you the other day, actually, when um, uh, Just Stop Oil went into the Crucible and stopped the snooker. Oh, yeah. And I was going, I reckon if Sam was still running the Crucible, he'd be dead proud of that. Well, I was at the first night of the proms, and I was one of the few people, when they, when they came on, I was one of the few people who applauded. Yes. <laughs> so that's a note to the RSPB. If you want someone to go out with the picket line, then that's you. You're the one. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. And it's good that we've got to fight the rain. <laughs> You've mentioned it a few times, so I'm not going to let you get off the stage without saying it. How's your list going? Oh, bless you. My life list, my British life list. Can everyone still hear us at the back? Can you hear us? Good, thank Great. you. Great. Uh, my British life list is on 393. That's out of 628, is that the Oh, yeah, number? but I mean, nobody's got more than 555, I think. Raise your I hand. Mean, <laughs> Uh, anyone who's got over 400, uh, I take my hat off to you. I've only been doing this seriously for about 16, 17 years now. And I've only got one tick this year. I went to see the grey-headed lapwing in Long Nanny in Northumberland, which was very lost. That's a Chinese bird. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, to, to give you an example of how I try and balance twitching with just being around nature, I probably, for my list if I'm trying to hit 400, should have driven on. I had a day off from all creatures. I went up to Long Nanny in Northumberland, and I probably should have carried on to Musselburgh, where there were three separate scoters, including Stainigers, which I'd never seen and needed for my life list. And it was another three hours. But I stopped, and I went to visit the Arctic Tern colony. And as I was walking past, I was surrounded by caroling skylarks, hmm. probably 20 of them. And, I mean, the, the lapwing was lovely, and I'm very pleased I've got it on my list, and it's a first for Britain, which is a lovely thing to have. It's my, I've only seen three. But actually, what I'll remember is being surrounded by arctic terns and skylarks. Is it a spiritual thing for you? You speak in a tone that suggests that there's something quite deep-rooted and emotional reaction to the, these encounters? 
that it's not just the list. No, it isn't just the list. No, it's ab it absolutely is spiritual. And it's not human. I feel quite itchy if I don't get out to watch birds or walk in a wood once a month. I don't know if, if you feel the same. There's a famous quote from Iris Murdoch. She talks about unselfing. I think it might be a word she coined. She goes out worrying about her latest review or some personal crisis that she's having, her mind entirely full of her own human problems, and then she sees a kestrel concentrating on whether it's going to drop on a, a mouse. And suddenly the world is all kestrel and her personal human problems are forgotten. And when she goes back to them, she says, they seem less important. And I, I can't really put it any better than that. Um, I, I don't often have words for, for that unselfing, but I need it. And I think we all do, actually. I was quite shocked only this week to see a story in the BBC that there'd been a scare about hemlock growing close to a children's school. Mm -hmm. And people had said, how dare we put these poisonous plants where children can eat them? Mm -hmm. I mean, children, first of all, children don't eat them. Nobody's died of hemlock poisoning, I'm pleased to say, for more than a century. You don't just watch children go, oh, I wonder what that tastes like. But of course, you know, the, the proper thing with a poisonous plant is to learn what it looks like, learn what it's used for, respect it, like it, grow it, if you like, and, and, and avoid eating it. Mm -hmm. Not be frightened of the fact that it's a plant. It seems to me to embody a relationship with nature that is really dangerous and we've got to get rid of because, you know, we're, we're setting fire to the planet. Last week was the most successful day the airlines have ever had in terms of flights in the air at once. We've got 108 degrees in Arizona, 40 degrees in Italy. The problem two years ago was how to keep climate change on the front pages. Now, the problem is how to keep it off. Mm -hmm. it's, it's everywhere. We are cooking this place, and if we're going to stop, and perhaps we aren't going to stop, but the first step has got to be getting out there because it matters to us. Not, not getting out there because we might accidentally eat something that kills us. Mm -hmm. And if that's spiritual, then all right, it's spiritual. But, you know, you take people out to hear nightingales. We have a, a reliable nightingale site near Waltham Abbey, just outside the M25. And um, we take people every year to hear nightingales because they never have. And people haven't seen a skylark. You know, you can, there are poems and poems and poems about skylarks. We've got the lark ascending. Everybody knows the Vaughan Williams. But how many people have actually seen a lark ascending and gone, yeah, it's like that piece? Hmm. <laughs> it's weird. We know it better in the concert hall than we do on the heath. What do you say to, then, to people then, considering a lot of what the bird fair is about is about ecotourism? Oh, well, yes, good what, point. Is there a way to align the desire to go, to see, to see the other, to see the exciting and exotic alongside conservation? Or do you think there isn't a way to have your, your bird cake and eat it? There has to be, because everybody who is here saying, visit our country because the wildlife is wonderful, uh 
uh-huh. is, is absolutely on the right path. And the RSPB did help produce the Wild Isle se- series for the BBC. Indeed. Wild Isles. I mean, I, I think, and perhaps this is what you'd expect coming from an RSPB ambassador, I think mm. the watchword is moderation. If you absolutely... I mean, we're saving our, our visits to South America uh, until we've learnt a bit more Spanish, uh, and perhaps the children are a bit older. But if, of course I want to go birding in, in Ecuador and Panama and, and, uh, and Peru. Would you ever so return to the Galapagos, or do you think that might be too traumatised an experience to see what it was and what it is? That's a very good question. Thanks. I don't know. Laura, <laughs> Laura hasn't been. Well, she could go without you. I've never been. Should we go, Laura? Yeah, there you are. There okay. you are. I, I think to go twice might be, I think that might just have to be a memory. Uh-huh. Because, of course, the best thing you can do for a, a wilderness is block it off and leave it alone. I mean, you know that from, mm-hmm. from woodlands. It, you, you, run a, you run a road through something and suddenly the two halves of it can't hear each other. Mm-hmm. And, and we wonder why breeding numbers go down. There's amazing uh, scientific studies at the moment about the uh, genetic differences between the same species on either side of a road and seeing how different kinds of animals are afraid to traverse the crossing and those who can't. Really? Yeah. It's kind of amazing. Um, so we think the problem is building on it, but next to it might be the problem. No, there's um, a very good book that's just come out uh, by Paul Donald called Trafication, which has a map in it which shows... It blacks out on the map everything that is within 500 metres of a road, and England is pretty much just a black blob. There's a bit where Dartmoor is, and... Uh, Salisbury Plain is quite neatly near, marked near there, you, where you is, grew up, which is great. Yeah. But as long as you don't mind getting shot by a tank. <laughs> um, but then unless you're up in, unless you're up in the Scottish Highlands or in the, the Welsh mountains, you're really you're really going to be very close to a road. And noise pollution, as well as road erosion, tire erosion, it's going to get into the natural population. So it's it's about having wild spaces, but hopefully having big enough wild spaces, interconnected wild spaces. Anyway, I'm not the interviewee. You mentioned. Poetry. One of the things that you did during lockdown was you released. Was it daily a pandemic poem, or was it three? In fact, usually three a day. I did a couple for you. I recorded a few, but I wanted to ask you what your favourite bird poem was. Well, I have several, but I brought one that you might not know, and if it's too long, you can always cut it out. But I'm going to read it to you anyway. <laughs> Because it fits. might be like Desert Island Discs, where you yeah. have to listen to it live, otherwise you don't get the full one. You get the sort of you get the fifteen-second snippet. Before <laughs> PRS get involved and say so you've got to start paying. Yes, exactly paying. that. Okay, so what I have to do first of all is is, is zoom it out. Let's see what your so password I, is. Um, bitten. <laughs> Once bitten. I could have said the the first poem that I read was for the for the program. It was called Pandemic Poems. The first one was The Darkling Thrush by Thomas Hardy which is a poem about him listening to what's probably a missile thrush singing at the turn of the year, in fact, at the turn of the century, 1899 to 1900. And I, I put it in because I'd heard a rumour that for the first time in years, because of the lockdown in Wuhan, you could hear birdsong. And I thought that was a silver lining to a particularly dark cloud. And in fact, if you were taking up birdsong, which I may have said you should do several times on the, <laughs> on the podcast, as it were. The spring of 2020 was the time to do it, because mm-hmm. it was so quiet. So um, this is by the American poet Mary Oliver. It's called Invitation. And it's about American goldfinches, which, as you know, probably d- don't look very like British goldfinches. They're, they're yellower. I think ours are prettier, but it's a matter of opinion. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> Invitation by Mary Oliver. Oh, do you have time 
to linger for just a little while out of your busy and very important day for the goldfinches that have gathered in a field of thistles for a musical battle to see who can sing the highest note or the lowest or the most expressive of mirth or the most tender. Their strong, blunt beaks drink the air as they strive melodiously, not for your sake and not for mine and not for the sake of winning, but for sheer delight and gratitude. Believe us, they say, it is a serious thing just to be alive on this fresh morning in the broken world. I beg of you, do not walk by without pausing to attend to this rather ridiculous performance. It could mean something. It could mean everything. It could be what Rilke meant when he wrote, you must change your life. Mary Oliver was a poet I didn't really know when I started Pandemic Poems, and she's very direct like that, but I suddenly thought, yeah, you must change your life. That's, that's a really good message for a poem to say, go out and listen to some birds. Was she a birder? Not specifically, I don't think, but obviously with an, with an eye for mm. it. Or an um, ear for it. An ear for it, exactly. She, she has lots of other, if you want to look up Pandemic Poems, they're on my Twitter feed. She has lots of other beautiful poems about... Um, Oh, wild geese, of course, by her. She must have been a bit of a birder. If I've said that, if I've said that she wasn't and she was, I apologise. But I um, don't know. There are three questions that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. The first question is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? Grasswood outside Grassington. Why? For, for, for metropolitan liberal wankers like me... Um, and, and you know, hi, how do you do? Uh, <laughs> North England species like flycatchers, pied and, and uh, spotted, like wood warbler, like red start, are, are really tricky. But if, if when we get to do all creatures great and small, we find ourselves with a morning off, I take people to grass wood. Grassington is our Darabi. And if we're not filming in Grassington where we have to turn it all into the 1930s, I sometimes find myself around there anyway. And if I'm there by 15 minutes before dawn, which is probably just before five mm -hmm. in the spring, I'm often alone and I will hear wood warbler, which is a sound I never hear in London, and maybe pied flycatcher as well. And just feel it coming up and I think why isn't everybody here I mean it's nice to be alone I see the occasional dog walker but really you can do an hour before before six and meet nobody mm -hmm. I don't love people the solitude no no no, <laughs> no. I don't love the solitude I, th I wish there were more people out otherwise I wouldn't be telling you but yeah grasswood near Grassington I probably or the west facing yeah, the west-facing valleys near Land's End. Cot Valley, um, Nangesor and Kinijak. Those extraordinary Cornish valleys that are full of migrants. I can see it in your eyes. You're sort of meandering around yeah. coastlines yeah. and through reed beds and salt marshes. Yeah. Gorgeous. I, I, I absolutely am. <laughs> um, second question. Who is your natural history hero? Oh, Peter Scott, I expect. Oh, OK. Because Barnes, the wetland centre 
was, was pretty formative in, in my getting to know mm -hmm. birds before I became a birder because I lived in southwest London and it's the best. Yeah. If, I don't know if you know Barnes was the, um, the Nine, Nine Elms Reservoirs. Yeah, and then WWT came along. And yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's been called the best urban bird, bird site in um, There's that amazing Europe. thing where someone who lives in London comes up to you and goes, have you been to Barnes? There's this big bit of water there, and you just—it's really relaxing and really lovely, yeah. and it really is. It's, it's and the they send thing. a bus from from Hammersmith Tube called the Duck Bus. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and final question: If you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? I mean, it would probably—it it should probably be some tiny island endemic, some Hawaiian, you know, rarity island. Island avifauna is so easy to, to squash. Mm -hmm. But I recently bid at an auction and failed to win a great orc feather. Oh, wow. And I was quite sad. It, was, it went for a lot, which is good. But I bid quite a lot, too. And mm -hmm. I thought, I must, I must really have wanted this. I don't know why I wanted it. I, sp I suppose I do. But what an extraordinary thing that was. And, and also, only just gone. Yeah. You know, Lewis Carroll saw them, drew them. So I suppose, yeah, have the great orc back. Poor thing. <laughs> Try not to eat quite so many of them next time. <laughs> do you like eating birds? Some of them. <laughs> I don't do waterland bunting. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, thank you very much indeed for talking to me. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have, and hopefully the audience have too. Thank you. Hands together. <laughs> And that's that. Thank you, Rutland. And thanks again to Sam and indeed to Ollie and Anna at the RSPB for their logistical support in setting this up. As always, if you want to know more about our guests, then head to treesacrowd.fm and you can even help support future episodes there by joining our Patreon account. I also thought that I'd take a short moment to promote a project that I have recently collaborated upon. Those of you who have listened to this podcast for a while will know that I have oft supported the work of the Manta Trust. In the Trees of Crowd archive, also available at treesofcrowd.fm, you will find interviews with the charity's CEO, Dr Guy Stevens, and also one with one of their ambassadors, filmmaker Doug Allen. The Manta Trust recently asked me to provide a narration for an interactive app that they were producing. It is brilliant, it is free, it is in the Apple and Android stores, and it is called Manta Story. It's beautiful and educational and will permit you and your loved ones to swim around the life cycle of manta rays in virtual and augmented realities, and it is well worth a quick download. Please do check it out. All that said, there are many, many more episodes to come. So thank you for your ears. And I look forward to seeing you all here next time. Bye bye for now. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.